Awesome. Praise God. Thanks, Seth. Yeah, that's uh, for those of you that whether I, some of you probably already know this, and maybe some of you don't. Um, in addition to the gifts that uh, members of our church designate specifically to be given to specific missionaries, we also tithe 10% of our general offerings to missions. So over the past few months, it's been neat to see this, our, our general offerings have increased. And so with that, the amount we've been able to give to missions has also increased. So thank you for supporting our missionaries, even through our, you know, just the general fund of our church, and thanks for praying for them. Uh, we, the team of missionaries that our church supports uh, are some fantastic people, and I'd encourage you sometime to just take a look at the board that uh, Seth and Becky and their team keep updated uh, just in the back of, of the entryway there uh, that just tells you some of the different missionaries and mission organizations that our church partners with right now. Fantastic people. Hopefully some of them, if you ever find out if any of them are going to be anywhere nearby, let us know so that we can have them here for a worship service. We'd love to see them. Well, I hope everybody had a uh, wonderful week. Some of you uh, had the chance to be here yesterday for uh, the work day. And one of the things that we had here yesterday uh, for the work day that really made life much easier is a giant lift that Mike Ivins owns. I don't know if anyone has seen that lift. And uh, I was talking to my dad yesterday uh, about it. And he's like, so wait, you rented this lift from somewhere? I was like, no, no, no. One of the men in the church owns it. He owns the lift. And he said, well, how high does it go? And uh, I said, he told me 47 feet. And so for much of the day, I was able to use that lift. Mike, Mike let me use it to paint, trim, and do different things on the outside of this building so I didn't have to stand on a ladder. I, I got to be up on that lift. But then, of course, later in the day, uh, my daughter Julia said to me, Dad, you're going to let me like take a turn on that, right? And I was like, well, maybe. We'll see how it goes. And so she got in the lift uh, with me at the end of the day, and I brought it up pretty far. And then there's also ground controls. So there's controls when you're in the bucket, but there's also ground controls. And the ground controls, I guess, can supersede the bucket controls. And uh, Mike decided that we needed to go up a little bit further than we were. So I think he, he took it up all the way. And it was great because it was right before the storm that was coming. So we're up there just swaying in the wind. And I looked at Julia, and we're about 50 feet in the air in this little bucket. And I was like, just hold on. Just, I don't know what Mike is doing to us right now. But just... Hold on until this is done. Eventually, he'll get tired of torturing us, and then he'll let us go down to the ground again. And we went down to the ground, and I, I have no shame in admitting, and I said it to him, too. I was like, that thing is scary <laughs> when you're up there. That's scary. Well, uh, today, we're starting a new series, and uh, we, uh, we spent a group of months. Oh, let's see. Is this not working all of a sudden? Let's see. It was working a minute ago. All right. Now, now it'll be good. Nope, it's not. So it's on you in the back today. Um, today we're starting a new series uh, where we're going to be looking at God. Now, obviously, every time we gather together to worship, we're looking at God, and we're studying what the Scriptures say about the Lord, and we're looking at details about uh, how the Lord has revealed Himself. But specifically, you know, a lot of times we're looking at some of the things that the Lord does, and we're certainly looking at uh, plenty of the things that He's revealed to us in Scripture but I'd like us to take some time, and so we'll do this in, you know, from today through the coming weeks. Uh, we're going to be looking at who God is. 
And today's message might seem structurally a little different from how I typically preach, but I want to set this up for us today by talking about uh, who God is, specifically looking at the fact that the Lord has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And typically we use the term Trinity to describe uh, the Lord's uh, triune nature. And so we're going to be going to be talking about the Trinity and what exactly the Trinity is and what the Lord has revealed to us in regard to that. And we're not going to be overly technical, but there are a few things that I want you to gather from that because I think that this is a concept that many people find a little bit tricky and a little bit confusing because when you think about it, there really isn't something on this earth that you can look at and say, okay, that's a perfectly adequate illustration for the Trinity. There's certain things that we've attempted to, to say, all right, well, that's kind of like something that's three in one, but not exactly. And that's kind of like something that's three in one. For all sorts of analogies people have used with eggs and clovers and uh, even apples uh, and, and all sorts of things that people have tried to use to explain how God can be one God, yet existing as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So try and wrap your mind around that. And the truth is, we can't perfectly wrap our mind around that. So really what it comes down to is, even though this isn't a concept I think we can perfectly understand, I do believe it's a concept that by faith we can learn to accept, because that's how God has revealed himself to us. So we're going to be taking a look at a variety of scriptures today. And the opening scripture I want us to look at is from Isaiah 46. Now, I'll tell you ahead of time, we're not going to spend a lot of time in Isaiah 46, but there's several concepts in Isaiah 46 that illustrate what we're going to be talking about today. So I want to start there as our starting point. And the Lord tells us a few things about himself when we look at this portion of of Isaiah 46. Specifically, we're going to start with verse 8, and then we're going to look down to verse 13. So we're going to look at just that small section. And this is what it says, starting with verse 8 in Isaiah 46. It says, Remember this, and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God... And there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. That's a key statement we're going to revisit in a few minutes. He goes on to say, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it together today. We're grateful, Lord, for uh, just the opportunity that you give to us as we start off our week to be able to spend it together with our brothers and sisters in Christ in this building, gathering together, worshiping you, studying your word together, learning more about what you've revealed to us about yourself. Lord, we're grateful for these things. We're grateful for what you've revealed. We're grateful for the understanding that you give to us 
as we look at your word and as we meditate on this teaching. Lord, we pray that you give us insight now. And we pray, Lord, that as we worship you, that it would be with sincerity. And as we look at what your word tells us about your nature, we pray that you would be preparing our hearts to grow in our walk with you. And likewise, Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts to partake of communion together in just a little while. So, Lord, we commit this time to you now, and we thank you for all of these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So many people in this world claim that God exists, but if you ask them to give you specifics about what he's like and what he does, I think in many respects you're likely to be given a lot of opinions, but very little biblical evidence to back up those opinions. Everybody has ideas, everybody has concepts, But I think what we need is biblical evidence related to who God actually reveals himself to be. And one of the things that you can see all throughout Scripture, when you read through the narrative of Scripture, it reveals something about a desire on the heart of God. God desires a deep, personal connection with his creation. He isn't disinterested and he isn't uninvolved with what he's made. And he doesn't ultimately desire to be disconnected or distant from humanity, even though some people mistakenly think that that's how God operates. Some people think that God just operates at a distance and that he's not actually involved or actually interested in what he's made. But because God is interested in what he's made, because God is interested in us specifically, he's intentionally made himself known to us. He's trying to be known to us. He's making himself known to us. He's revealing himself to us. Creation itself testifies to the existence of God. You know, when you look, Scripture tells us if you just look around at what God has made, it testifies to the fact that there is indeed a designer and indeed a creator, right? So creation itself testifies to God's existence. But in addition to that, the Lord has very intentionally and progressively over the course of human history, he's made very specific things about himself known to us over the course of time because he wants to be known. At present, so just ask this question to yourself, just think about this for a moment. At present, does God seem distant and unknowable to you? You know, when you think of God, does he seem distant and unknowable to you? Is that something you've been wrestling with, or is that a thought that maybe you've had in your mind for a while, that maybe God seems distant, or he seems unknowable? And as a follow-up to that, I'll, I'll ask this, would you like to get to know him more deeply? Would you like to have a deeper walk with him, a deeper relationship with him? Would you like to have a confidence in your heart and in your mind that you know more about God today than you knew about him yesterday, or that your relationship with him is deeper today than it happened to be yesterday. I think for many of us, if not most, if not all of us, the answer to that is yes. Now, when you look through the scriptures, and when we look closely at how God's revealed himself, he specifically revealed himself to us as father. He has specifically revealed himself to us as son. He has specifically revealed himself to us as Holy Spirit. And typically, as we're looking at these details, as God has revealed himself in this fashion to us, we refer to these three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as the Trinity. But do we understand this concept? Is that a concept we understand? 
You know, it's something that, again, I think it's something we can accept. I don't know that we could understand it fully and completely, but I do think we could work to understand that concept better. So beginning today and for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at what Scripture tells us about the divinity of our Lord, the unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the ministry of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the relatability of the Lord. And so these are things that the Scriptures bring up, and these are things that we're going to be looking at during our time together. Now, let me show you a couple things here. So, yeah, I'm not sure what, what the deal is here. Just kick the computer. Like, just give it a good kick and let it know that I'm noticing that it's being fussy. Yeah, look at this. Nope. All right. So it's all on you. So you have to guess when I'm ready to, tri- to transition to the next slide. But for starters, one of the things that we want to look at is this idea that there is one God, and He is unique. There's one God, and He is unique. Now, in this world, there are many belief systems and a considerable amount of confusion regarding things like our origins, regarding moral standards, and regarding our ultimate outcome. People have all kinds of opinions about these things and all kinds of ideas. In fact, during the course of my life, and I'm sure that your experience has been very similar to this, But during the course of my life, I have met people who believe that there are many gods. I have met people who believe that there is no God. I have met people who worship idols. I have met people who worship demons. I have met people who worship royalty. Uh, I've also met people who worship their ancestors. And just a quick glance at humanity, and even when we analyze some of the experiences that we've had or with, with some of the people that the Lord's allowed us to come to know, it demonstrates that, uh, that mankind is longing for a sense of meaning and someone to reach out to for help, someone that we could reach out to for a deeper level of understanding and assistance. Now, at one point in human history, when you look through the scriptures, when you look through the earliest pages of the scriptures, but at one point in human history, it was clearly known that there was one God. That wasn't even something that initially was debated. It was clearly known that there was one God. There was no initial confusion about this. But then scripture tells us that Lucifer, an angel who fell because he wanted to be worshipped, he encouraged humanity to begin worshipping him. And he encouraged us to begin worshipping ourselves. And he encouraged us to start worshiping creation instead of worshiping God, our creator. And we could have rejected these notions of misplaced worship, but instead what we did was we embraced them, right? And throughout the course of history, we've seen this parade of religious confusion that has been on display ever since. There's all sorts of confusion related to how God has revealed himself or how God is to be worshipped. And all sorts of people believe all sorts of different things. But again, initially, there wasn't confusion regarding these things. From the beginning, the Lord made himself known to mankind. And he did so with the intention to foster a genuine relationship with us. And he's told us in his word that there is one God, not many. And he's also made it clear to us that he is unique and there is nobody that's completely like him. Uh, One of the portions of scripture that he references in regard to that, that I'll point out to us, and by the way, on each of my slides today, I don't have every last verse uh, brought up on the slide, but what I did was I put on the base of each slide the references that I'm going to be referring to in case you want to jot those down to look at later by yourself. But in Deuteronomy 6, Verses 4 to 5, it says this, Hear, O Israel, 
the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In Isaiah 46 that we just read just a few moments ago, verse 9, it says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So that's, these are some of the things that the Lord's been revealing, right? He's revealing that, that there is one God and there is nobody like him. There's nobody and nothing like God. God is unique and he is one. There aren't many gods. There is one God and he is unique. So no idol, no false God, no man-made system of belief can compare to the real and true and living God. He isn't one of many viable options. He's the only option. And just as a spouse should never flirt with somebody outside their marriage, when you look at what the Scripture tells us, the Scripture tells us that the Lord doesn't desire that we flirt with the false gods of this world. He doesn't want us to dabble a little bit over here and dabble a little bit over there. Scripture refers to the unbiblical teaching of these, these false systems of belief as the teaching or the doctrine of demons. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I'll have you jump to that slide for me, if you will. It says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, many people, when they're buying into some of these false beliefs, I'm certain that they're not in their mind thinking, I think this is something that's taught by a demon. I think that this is a false belief that I should buy into because it comes directly from the council of hell. I'm certain that people don't think that in their mind. You know, when you look at these things, they, a lot of times it's like, well, that sounds reasonable and that sounds plausible and, and that sounds, maybe that sounds sort of like the experiences that I've had. I think I'll buy into that. And yet when you look at what the scripture tells us, it tells us that, that, the, that, uh, that there are false beliefs in this world that are effectively the doctrines or the teaching of demons. And the Lord has called you and me to be very careful about where the affections of our heart start to go. And again, the way I like to describe this, and it's not just me, I mean, the scripture itself describes it this way, and the Lord describes it this way. You know, when you're married, the Lord calls you to be faithful to your spouse. He calls you to, to not just lend your, the affections of your heart every single direction that you feel like going or anyone that you become infatuated with or whatever it may be. The Lord calls you to be faithful to your spouse and he wants our relationship with him to have that kind of fidelity. He wants our relationship with him to have that kind of faithfulness, not to start drifting toward a little bit of this false teaching or a little bit of this false religious practice and, and start incorporating it into my life. I'm still a Christian, but I adopt this pattern and this practice and this false belief. And the Lord treats that like we're flirting with somebody outside our marriage relationship with him. And so he's called us not to yield the affections of our hearts to anything else but him. We're called to love him with our whole heart. We're called to love him with our whole soul. We're called to love him with our whole might. That's what we're told in the scriptures, in particular in Deuteronomy 6 that we read just a few moments ago, to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and might. Because there's one God, and he's unique. And he's the one that the affections of our hearts should be directed toward. Now, the scriptures reveal something else about God. And I'll have you jump to the next slide for me, Matt. And that's this. 
God exists as three co-eternal and co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God exists as three co-eternal and co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So again, God desires that we know more about Him, and in the process, what He's done is He's graciously made it so that we can know more about Him. And there's certainly much about God that we don't know yet fully, so in some respects, I think when we're approaching this discussion of who God is and what He does and what He's like, we need to be comfortable with a healthy level of mystery. And I'll tell you, when I was a new believer, um, not so much when I was a new believer, it was actually a little bit once I became a little bit seasoned as a believer in, in the Lord, one of the things that I wanted to do is I wanted to have every last detail of God figured out. Every single thing about him figured out. Now, it was out of a desire to know him, and it was out of a desire to grow in my walk with him and, and to even you know, begin preparing for ministry. And so I thought, all right, I, have, you know, I, I used to dread the day when, um, before I was a pastor when one of you would ask me a question. So I thought, what if they ask me a question and I don't know the answer? So I remember in the years prior... Now, just think about how ridiculous that is. Do you know the answer to every question that anyone will ever ask you, right? But for some reason, when I was preparing for ministry, I thought, I have to know the answer to every question I might possibly get asked. Now, it was good training, so I would try and figure out every last detail that I could figure out. And in the process, I tried to really get God in some very tight parameters. Basically, I was trying to make God as explainable as I possibly could, and I was trying to take every last aspect of theology and the details that Scripture reveals and fit everything into neat, explainable boxes, because if you had a question for me, I wanted to be able to refer to one of those boxes and just be able to simply say, all right, that fits in this box over here, and let me give you those details. And this is what I learned. The boxes get you close, but there's certain things that the Lord hasn't given us the details about on purpose. So they're on purpose. There are things that the Lord has not told us yet. You know, Scripture talks about the fact that right now it's like we, we look in a, like a foggy mirror, you know, where we, we have some details, we have some information, but there's a lot of stuff that we still don't know. And one of the things that I began learning as my walk with the Lord progressed is that I needed to be comfortable with a certain level of mystery to not go beyond what he's revealed. So to learn what he's revealed in the, in the scriptures and to have that committed to heart and have that committed to mind, but also to recognize that there's still more that I need to learn and still more I need to know. And when we have the privilege to live in his presence for all eternity, do you think we will be learning during that time? I do. I don't believe that the second we arrive in heaven we will now know every detail that we are, we're curious about right now. I think progressively we'll continue to learn in the perfect state and that our understanding and appreciation of God will continue to grow. So there are things that we have to be comfortable about that are a little bit mysterious, but we can look at what the Lord's ultimately revealed to us. And over time, what He's done progressively throughout the course of human history is he's given us additional information about himself. He's revealed additional aspects of his character or additional aspects of his nature so that we could know who he is, what he's doing, and how we can relate to him because he doesn't want to operate at a distance from us. He wants us to live 
in close proximity to Him. Now, throughout history and throughout the Scriptures, the Lord's made it clear to us that while He is one God, He exists in three co-eternal and co-equal persons called the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you ever try and explain the Trinity to your children? How'd you do? That's tricky, right? Do you ever try and explain the Trinity to an adult? Anyone want to swap spots real quick? The truth is, while this fact is true, while the, the, you know, this is how the Lord has revealed himself to us, it's difficult to comprehend fully because there's no other perfect thing that we could point to and say, well, it's kind of like this. Because anything I can think of, the, you know, I, I've heard people say, all right, like, let's take an egg. You've got the shell, and you've got like the white of the egg, and you've got the yolk, but it's one egg. And it's like, yeah, but that doesn't work because the yolk isn't 100% egg, and the white of the egg isn't 100% egg, and the shell isn't 100% egg. Those are parts of the egg. The Father is not part of God. The Father is God. The Son is not part of God. The Son is 100% God. The Spirit is not part of God. The Spirit is 100% God. And so any human analogy that I've ever come across or anything that's ever been presented to me, it always seems to fall short in some way or in some manner. I've even heard with apples, it's the same concept as like um, eggs, you know, where they're like, all right, you've got the seed on the inside, and then you've got, you know, the fruit of the apple, and then you've got the skin of the apple, and that's the whole apple. And it's like, no, no, no. That doesn't work because the Father doesn't stop being God. He's not like a part of God. He's not like just the outer shell of God. He's God, 100%. The Son is 100% God. The Spirit is 100% God. So all of these analogies break down. They don't really work. But it's also important to note that we don't worship three gods. We have one God, right? There is one God who has eternally existed in perfect community and perfect relationship with himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each distinct in their role, but the same in their essence. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and Scripture reveals to us that they are eternally united as one. The word Trinity that we use to describe God, that's not a word that's actually found in the Bible. But it's a word that we've been using for centuries now simply to describe the fact that God's nature is triune. He's revealed himself uh, in, in a triune way, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Various portions of Scripture reveal uh, the fact that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It reveals our triune God. Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord... Excuse me, it says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And I bring that up because that's the verse of Scripture that Jesus referenced at the start of his earthly ministry to express that he was the fulfillment of this prophecy that speaks of the Holy Spirit, that speaks of the Father, and that speaks of the Son. So again, that portion of Scripture says, the Spirit, so you have the Holy Spirit referenced, of the Lord God, you have the Father referenced is upon me. That's a portion of Scripture. The me is referencing Christ. So you have Father, Son, and Spirit referenced in Isaiah 61.1. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, 
a portion of Scripture that we often reference during the Christmas season. The Scripture says this, And the, angels, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So again, we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit referenced in that portion of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says this. This is at the baptism of Christ. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So again, we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus also made it abundantly clear that he was one with the Father. This is what he said in John chapter 10, verse 30. He said, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And then in John 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit whom the Father would send to those who believed in Christ. And Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So again, we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, perfect unity. And isn't it amazing? Let's just think about this, not from a theological standpoint. And I realize a lot of what I've been sharing so far is obviously theological in nature. But think about this from a personal standpoint for just a quick second. Isn't it amazing to consider that our perfect, self-existent, triune God would care enough about us to come to us, to rescue us from sin and condemnation, and to promise to remain with us as our helper and the one who would lead us in the direction of all truth? That, you know, as we're trying to describe God, as we're trying to describe His nature, and we're realizing, as we, even as we look at these portions of Scripture, that we can accept these facts, but it's hard to wrap our mind around these things. This God who is so far beyond our ability to wrap our minds around looks at us with compassion and love and says, I want to be in relationship with you. I want you to have a relationship with me. I want you to be part of my family for all eternity. I want to take care of the problem you have with sin. I want to forgive it. I want to atone for it. I want to welcome you into eternal life. That he looks at us and he's personally concerned with each and every one of us. Doesn't that amaze you when you're looking at some of the details about how God reveals himself? That in the midst of all of those details that are so hard for our minds to wrap around, that we still find a God who cares about us personally. So what's God doing? What's he up to? What's he doing? Let me have you jump to the next slide for me, if you would. God creates. Scripture tells us God creates. Tells us God redeems. And it tells us that God gives grace. When I was a child, I would often wonder about what God was doing. And I don't know what kind of pictures you had in your mind about God when you were a kid. I pictured him doing things like sitting on a large throne. So that's obviously the starting point, right? You got to picture a large throne. So I would picture that. I also pictured him throwing lightning bolts. I think that that's probably a common uh, image that people have of God. You know, he's throwing lightning around. Uh, I also pictured God as being an expert bowler. That's true, because when you're a child, people say things and it gets stuck in your head. And some of you probably had the same image because you have weird relatives like I have 
And uh, somewhere along the way, during a thunderstorm, I had heard when I was a child that someone make the comment, oh, that's just God bowling with the angels. I was like, really? Okay. I joined a bowling league when I was in fourth grade. True story. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of had this picture. I was like, wow, I, like, what do they bowl? Like, do they look like human pins? Like, do they have like, like the ones that we have down here? Like, what does it look like? I didn't know. You know, but you accept stuff on faith when you're a kid. God bowling, God throwing lightning, God sitting on a throne. These are the images that I had in my mind. And there's a lot of misguided thoughts floating around and, you know, things that people think that the Lord spends his time doing. But again, thankfully, when we look at the scriptures, we could actually see what he does. He makes his activities clear to us so that we would have an understanding that's accurate in regard to his work. Scripture teaches us that God is creator. Multiple places, Scripture tells us. You know, when you look around, you have a totally different worldview if you accept that one fact right there as a starting point, that God is creator. When you look at creation and when you look at other people, you see and interact with things differently when you accept that it's been intentionally created by God. When you look at the other people, even people that annoy you, as being intentionally created by God, I think you treat them differently, or at least perceive them as having a higher degree of value. I think when you look around at creation, it's fascinating to look at it and say someone purposely designed all of this, instead of thinking, wow, that's fascinating that this just came into existence on its own power or somehow as a freak accident. You have a totally different and more purposeful understanding of life, nature, creation, when you accept the fact that God is creator. And Scripture tells us multiple places that God creates. In Psalm 95, verses 4 and 5, it says, In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. By the way, when you're reading these Psalms, isn't it It feels impossible not to praise the Lord when you consider the vastness of what he's done. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. So we look around, we see the things that he's created. Scripture also teaches us that God rescues and redeems his creation from the corruption of sin. So we talked about earlier the fact that we invited sin into our experience on this earth, but the Lord still looks at us with compassion, and He decides to do something about it. He rescues and redeems His creation from the corruption of sin. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 say, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Scripture also teaches that our God gives grace to people. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And we'll get into more of these details in future weeks, but let me say this in regard to salvation. It's interesting when you look at salvation as it's explained in Scripture. Salvation has been orchestrated by God the Father. It's been accomplished by God the Son. And it's been applied by God the Holy Spirit. Isn't that fascinating? 
the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all involved in your salvation, in my salvation. This is the kind of work that our God is doing on our behalf that we have the privilege of meditating on and thinking about and appreciating now and for all eternity as we trust in Him. And I want to share one more thing with us this morning as we finish up. And that's this. And it's something about ourselves. It's something about our, what's going on inside of us that demonstrates our need for God. Let me jump, have you jump to the last slide. And that's this. Our deepest longings demonstrate our need for God. Our deepest longings. So when you think about your deepest longings as a person, those deep longings that exist within you show that you were designed to have a relationship with your Creator. And they demonstrate our need for God. Both our existence and our joy are dependent on the Lord. Our deepest longings, the deepest parts of our soul right now, cry out to be satisfied in a way that can only be satisfied by the Lord. We're longing for peace. We're longing for contentment. And that peace and that contentment cannot be obtained in any other way than through a relationship with our God through faith in Jesus Christ. Think about our longings for a second. Every single one of us in this room longs to be loved. Now, this world speaks frequently of this concept of love, but it usually means lust, and it usually means infatuation when it uses that word. But our hearts are longing for an abiding, unconditional love that is not diminished by circumstances. We find the satisfaction of that kind of love in the Lord Himself. We long for relationship. Many people in this world make most of their biggest and most regretful decisions in regard to trying to satisfy that longing in unhealthy ways. So if they're trying to satisfy this longing that we have for relationship in unhealthy ways, people make many regretful choices. But our God who exists eternally in perfect relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, invites us to find ultimate satisfaction for our desire for relationships through experiencing a real relationship with Him. We long for peace. Now, this world treats peace in very circumstantial ways, thinking that peace might be the absence of uh, conflict or maybe the pause of conflict. But God offers us greater peace than that. Through Christ, our souls find rest. The shame that once dominated our consciences is quieted, and now we begin to hear the voice of the Lord calling us blameless because we've been forgiven and we've been covered by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. We long for the end of pain and sorrow. And uh, again, I appreciate those of you that have taken the time to pray for me and for my family during the course of this week. As we've mourned the, the passing of my mother, uh, I've had the opportunity this week to see not only in myself, but also in those that I love, deep sorrow. The, deep kind of so- the deepest kind of sorrow that we tend to experience on this earth when someone we love passes away. And in the midst of that, what do you find yourself doing? You try and find comfort for your heart, and you're trying to find comfort for the hearts of those that you love and care about. We long for the end of pain and sorrow. That's a longing in my heart and your heart. And our Lord promises us 
that he is going to bring a day to pass when sorrow and pain and mourning will come to an end. The scripture promises us that the Lord will reign both on the throne of our hearts and on the throne of this earth, and he will be worshipped as God once again. And this confusing era where people live as if they don't know who he is will come to an end, and he will restore his creation to resemble what he wanted it to be in the beginning. Let me have you throw up one more slide. I said that was the last one. That was a, an accidental fib. Does anyone know who the woman on the, on the right is? Bonus points if you know who the guy on the left is. Does anyone know who's on the left? It's an author, Arthur Miller. Does anyone, you know who he is? Kind of a big deal in his own right. But on the right, who's that on the right? You know who that is, right? It's Marilyn Monroe, right? It's Marilyn Monroe. I had to be very selective when I was trying to find a picture of Marilyn Monroe that was acceptable to share with us as a congregation this morning, Uh, but she took a few acceptable ones. That was one that's acceptable. But for decades, one of the most recognizable people in pop culture has been Marilyn Monroe. And we know that in her day, she was considered the standard of beauty. Uh, Men threw themselves at her. Uh, She was also, if you look at her life history, she's also very regularly treated very poorly by people in very powerful positions. She was taken advantage of continually. People treated her like garbage. And I think while her life probably seemed glamorous to just about everybody except those who knew her up close, it became eventually clear that she was a very sad person and she was very lonely. And throughout most of her life, at least her adult life, she felt deeply unloved and used. I want to share a couple quotes that she said. But I also, as I'm saying this, I don't want us to just be thinking about her. See yourself in some of these statements. She's no different than us. She said, a woman can't be alone. She needs a man. A man and a woman support and strengthen each other. She just can't do it by herself. Sometimes I feel like my life has been one big rejection. Then she said, I'm a failure as a woman. My men expect so much of me because of the image they've made of me and that I've made of myself. There's just a couple quick statements. These are things that she said during the course of her life. And when you get past the, the glamour and the fame, what do you start to see? You see a longing for relationship. You see a longing for acceptance. You see a longing to be shown grace. You see, a longing for unconditional love. And whenever I see things related to her, or even she shows up in a lot of historical documentaries that, um, that I'll watch um, just because of her connection with some very powerful people. But I always think her tragic life is a very powerful illustration of the type of things that all of us are wrestling with. But what does the Lord reveal to us? He reveals that he alone is the one who can satisfy those longings. The same things that she illustrated in her life she was longing for, the same things that you and I all long for. And the Lord himself is the one who can satisfy those longings. And those unsatisfied longings persist because we keep trying to find them in things that never can. We're always trying to find the satisfaction for the deepest longings of our soul through things that have been created when our soul can only ultimately be satisfied by the one who creates. The creator satisfies the soul. His creation doesn't. 
His creation is beautiful. His creation is useful. His creation testifies to his existence, but he's the one who satisfies our soul. There is a void in our lives that cannot be filled by anyone or anything else than our triune God. And we come to know him personally, and we'll be seeing this more in detail as we unfold this in the coming weeks. But we come to know the Lord personally through faith in God the Son, Jesus Christ. Christ who took on flesh. Christ who walked among us. Christ who intentionally made himself known to us so that we don't need to continually wander like dissatisfied, malcontent, lost sheep forever. Our Lord desires that we have that kind of relationship with him. And when Christ was ministering on this earth, he spoke to his disciples, and effectively he was saying to them and to us, listen, I know you're forgetful people. And I know that it's going to be easy for you to forget what it took for you to have a relationship with me. So before Christ was crucified, before he rose from the grave, before any of these things took place, he took bread, he took wine, and he gave it to his disciples and he said, I want you to partake of these things regularly together. And when you do so, I want you to remember my body which was given for you and my blood that was shed for you so that effectively you don't forget what it took to atone for your sins so that you could have a relationship with me, your creator. So in just a moment, we're going to do that. We're going to partake of the bread and the grape juice together, remembering Jesus, remembering what he has done, so that our God, who seems in one respect mysterious to us, would be intimately known by us, so that we would experience new life, the forgiveness of sin, and that we could rejoice in the fact that our God desires to have a relationship with us every single day in every single context. Before we partake of communion together, one of the things that we do as a congregation, if you're new with us today, is we like to just pause for a moment of silent prayer. And so what we do during that time, we just pray silently to the Lord. We confess anything that's in our heart or on our, on our mind. If there's anything that you're wrestling with or anything that you feel like you've invited into your life that doesn't belong there, we encourage you to just confess it over to the Lord. So right now I'd encourage you, let's just bow our heads and do that for a time of confession before the Lord. And after a moment, I'll lead us in prayer together as a group. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege that it is to know you. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that it is to see how you have revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. Lord, we're grateful that even though there are so many things about you that still remain mysterious to us, you've given us what we need to know for now. You've invited us to trust you. You've invited us to accept what you have revealed. And we're grateful for these things. Lord Jesus, on the basis of the fact that you have atoned for our sin, we come before you this morning and we confess the fact that we are sinners who struggle with all sorts of things. We invite things into our lives that don't belong there, but we're also grateful for your forgiveness. And you tell us, Lord, that you delight to, con- that you delight to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we praise you for that this morning. Lord, we recognize that we are 
so frequently forgetful men and women who can go through an entire day and not even think about the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. But Lord Jesus, with compassion, you looked at us. We were lost. We had no hope on our own. So you came to this earth. You took on flesh. You lived the perfect life. You died to pay for our sin. You had no sin of your own. You paid for ours. You rose from the grave. You defeated sin, Satan, and death. You invite us to trust in you and to experience salvation, to experience the forgiveness of our sin. And you implore us, Lord, not to forget the price that was paid for us to enjoy these benefits. So, Lord Jesus, as we come before you today, we do so with thankful hearts. We're grateful for what you've done. We're grateful for the privilege that it is to be able to come before you and to be welcomed into your presence. We thank you for the bread reminding us of your body. We thank you for the juice reminding us of your blood. And we thank you, Lord, for the communion that we have with you and the communion we have with one another as we're united to you and united together through faith in you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.